Thank you for tuning in to the Only You Podcast. Welcome back. It's January. I'm doing another podcast today on, it's called Freedom's Battle. Thank you for tuning in. This is a book that was written by Mahatma Gandhi. And I wanted to read you this book because in my lifetime as a U.S. citizen, I have heard people say, well, that's karma. That's karma, bitch. You know, and every time I would hear somebody say that, I would I would initially think, well, I don't think they really know what they're talking about. And I didn't realize my intelligence level when I was young because I, you know, I didn't have anybody to develop my mind, which came later in life when I realized that the importance of education and, you know, being able to step back and analyze certain social situations and problems and be able to be a good person in a social situation at all times. It's not always the easiest thing to do. Just had to have me a sip of coffee. You know, this is a live podcast. And I enjoy doing these podcasts because there's a lot of informational books that people aren't reading and they're passing over. And I feel like books will get you on a level that will show you that this life is yours and yours alone. And kids, you know... So I shouldn't say kids, uh, young adults, they go through a lot of stuff because they aren't taught that, you know, this is your vessel. This is your life. You only have 35,000 days on this planet to make a mark and, you know, try to hit it. And if that mark is being a janitor at the local school and having a loving wife and great kids at home, so be it. That's true happiness. You know, one man's happiness can't be measured by another man's happiness. And today I'm doing Freedom's Battle by Mahatma Gandhi because Mahatma Gandhi was a pretty well-renowned guy and he was born, uh, I believe, on October 2nd. Where am I here? I lost my place, you guys, already. That's early in the game. 1869. He died, unfortunately, on January 30th, 1948, and he was assassinated, everybody. Born and raised into a Hindu family in coastal Gujarat, Gandhi trained in the law at the Inner Temple London and was called to the bar at age 22 in June 1891. After two uncertain years in India, where he was unable to start a successful law practice, he moved to South Africa in 1893 to represent an Indian merchant in a lawsuit. He went on to live in South Africa for 21 years. It was here that Gandhi raised a family and first employed nonviolent resistance in a campaign for civil rights. And in reality, in America, we learned a lot from Mahatma Gandhi. And we um, have applied his practices in many situations in our own country. In 1915, age 45, he returned to India and soon set about organizing peasants, farmers, and urban laborers to protest against excessive land tax and discrimination. Assuming leadership in the Indian National Congress in 1921, Gandhi led nationwide campaigns for easing poverty, expanding women's rights, building religious and ethnic 
uh, amity, ending untouchability, and above all, achieving sawara, a self-rule or self-rule. Gandhi adopted the short dihote, dihate. The dihate is also known as vachetti, is a type of uh, sarong tied in a manner that outwardly resembles a uh, loose trousers or you know like the type of pants that uh were popular woven with uh, hand spun yarn as a mark of identification with india's rural poor he began to live in a self-sufficient residential community to eat simple food and undertake long fasts as means of both introspection and political protest and Mahatma Gandhi, I have read things about him. He would fast. If he needed to make a serious decision about something, he would always fast about something. Like, he fasted for, you know, years without sex. He fasted for, without food. He, You know, he did a lot of fasts throughout his life. And I, I also think that maybe he may include that in this book as some of his fastings and the things. Because if... You guys don't know anything about fasting. It's one of the greatest things, you know. People always want you to say, you know, they want to say that dieting is the way to go. Well, not truly. That's not true. I mean, in 72 hours of fasting, which is very probably impossible to do in America because there's fast foods on every street corner. And like everything's like at your fingertips. But, I mean, if you were to fast for 72 hours... um. It would eat all cysts. It would clean your lymphatic system. It would eat all cancers. Like the fasting, your body would just like pretty much absorb itself and start fresh. It literally um, causes uh, cellu cellular um, like division when you fast. And it makes you pretty much hard reset your whole body if you do it. Because, like, every, even 12 hours of fasting is proven to help with, you know, better sleep, uh, more happiness, and an overall better life. He began to live in a self-sufficient residential community, um, bringing anti-colonial nationalism to the common Indians, which I believe he had joined the anti-colonial nationalism in South Africa. Gandhi led them to... Uh, Challenging the British-imposed salt tax, uh, Dandy Salt March in 1930, and and calling for British to quit India in 1942, he was imprisoned many times for many years in both South Africa and India. Because, I mean, when you get a voice like that and you create your own platform. And that's why people say that in life there isn't anything you can't do. That, you know, your mind is your own worst enemy. And the only person that's holding you back is yourself and your um, disbeliefs and shortcomings. Gandhi's vision of an independent India based on religious pluralism was challenged in the early 1940s by a Muslim nationalism which demanded a separate homeland for Muslims within British India. In August 1947, Britain granted independence by the British Indian Empire and was partitioned into two dominions, a Hindu-majority India and a Muslim-majority Pakistan. 
And see, even even those fights right there, <clears throat> um, the Muslims actually have found loopholes in Parliament in France to be able to get Sharia law into the French Parliament, which they have. I mean, and they also have done it in Great Britain too. They tried to in the United States, I believe, at the beginning of the two thousands. They tried to get Sharia law here. And I believe the United States government told them that'll never happen. And they are still continuing looking for loopholes in our government to allow Sharia law here. And if you don't know anything about Sharia law, it allows the Islamic male to... I mean, if like if your wife cheats on you or something, he could behead her in the street. He can chop her hands off, stuff like that. I'm not saying that's what they all do, but um, there's a lot of wrongs that go on um inside the muslim community as well like there's so much emphasis put on women and women are abused so bad by some parts of their you know culture that they wind up abusing their young girls and the women wind up abusing their young girls and their young girls are like actually really traumatized for the most part from their father and their mother and there's actually um a podcast called um the human brain and that gentleman actually interviews a woman who was brought up in a Muslim home and community and she talks about how she was mistreated by her mother and her sisters and her aunts and all the women that she knew were treated the same way you know as a third-class citizen at some sort as many displaced Hindus Muslims and Sikhs made their way to new lands, religious violence broke out, especially in Punjab and Bengal, which are towns there, abstaining, or cities. Abstaining from the official celebration of independence, Gandhi visited the affected areas, attempting to alleviate distress. In the months following, he undertook several hunger strikes to stop religious violence, and that's him fasting. The last of these begun in Delhi on... 12 January 1948 on the 12th of January 1948 when he was 78 years old also had the indirect goal of pressuring India to pay out some cash assets owned to Pakistan owed to Pakistan wow if I could talk sorry guys although the government of India relented as did the religious rioters the belief that Gandhi had been too resolute in his defiance of both Pakistan and Indian Muslims, especially those besieged in Delhi, spread among some Hindus in India. Among these was Nathuram Godse, a militant Hindu nationalist from western India who unfortunately assassinated Gandhi by firing three bullets into his chest at an interfaith prayer meeting in Delhi. On January 30th, 1948. Thank you guys for listening. This is the Only You Podcast. And this is called Freedom's Battle. And it's by Mahatma Gandhi. Although, and I want to tell you a little bit more. Although, about Gandhi. Although he only had an elementary education. And had previously been a clerk in the state administration. Um, Mahat proved a capable chief minister. During his tenure, he married four times. His first two wives died young after each had given birth to a daughter, and his third 
marriage was childless. In 1857, he sought his third wife's permission to remarry. That year, he married Pudlibia, who also came from Janagata, was from a Pranamami Vaishnava family. And Pranamami is a sect which worships the words of the Supreme God, Krishna, which in history, if you ever see a picture of Krishna, Krishna is a goddess that has her mouth open and she has the universe inside of her mouth. So actually there's a lot of wonderful, beautiful arts out there of Krishna. They're fascinating. Thank you guys for listening. Um, this is Freedom's Battle by Mahatma Gandhi. And thank you for tuning in to this reading. After the Great War, it is difficult to point out a single nation that is happy. But this has come out of the war that there is not a single nation outside India that is not either free or striving to be free. It is said that we too are on the road to freedom. See now, back then, everything was about freedom. Oh, freedom this, freedom that. Well, everybody in the world is pretty much free at this point. I mean, yes, the type of government they have is communism. The type of government they have is authoritarian, whatever. But most of these places in the world are free at this point. And now, in today's age, the governments will start preaching safety. Oh, you need safety. Oh, you're not going to be safe. We'll protect you. And once... Governments start um, preaching safety, it infringes upon your freedoms because to keep somebody safe, you got to take away freedoms. And, you know, like when they came in the United States, they came out with um, the Patriot Act that took away a lot of our freedoms. Not a lot of people know that, but, you know, they don't they don't need you to allow them to come into your house. If they really want to come in, they're going to come in no matter what. You know, they don't have to have a warrant and all that crap anymore um and safety yeah like i said you know with safety it infringes upon certain freedoms that allows them to take away your freedoms and make you less free the new constitution granted to india keeps all the military forces both in the direction and in the financial control entirely outside the scope of responsibility of the people of india what does this mean? It means that the revenues of India are spent away on what the nation does not want. But after the Mid-Eastern complications and fresh Asiatic additions to Britain uh, imperial spheres of action, this Indian military servitude is a clear danger to national interests. And I want to read the Muslim, Muslim agony. The Muslim agony. Agony, sorry. To understand our present condition, it is not enough to realize the general political servitude. We should add to it the reality and the extent of the injury inflicted by Britain on Islam and thereby on Muslims of India. It's Muslims, M U S S A L M A N S. Muslims. Muslims. Muslims of India. The articles of Islamic faith, which it is necessary to understand in order to realize why Muslim men 
India, which was once so loyal, is now so strongly moved to the contrary, are easily set out and understood. Every religion should be interpreted by the professors of that religion. The sentiments and religious ideas of Muslims founded on the traditions of long generations cannot be altered by logic or cosmopolitanism as others understand it. Such an attempt is more unreasonable when it is made not even as a bona fide and independent effort of logic or reason, but only to justify a treaty entered into political and worldly worldly purposes. The Khalifa is the authority that is entrusted with the duty of defending Islam. He is the successor to Muhammad and the agent of God on earth. According to Islamic tradition, he must possess sufficient temporal power effectively to protect Islam against non-Islamic powers and he should be one elected or accepted by the Muslim world. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And this is Freedom's Battle by Mahatma Gandhi. Is the, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> it is the sacred home of Islam and center up towards which Islam throughout the world's turns and prayer according to the religious injunctions of the muslims this entire area should always be under muslim control its scientific border being believed to be protection for the integrity of islamic life and faith every muslim throughout the world is enjoined to sacrifice his all if necessary for preventing the Arab under complete Muslim control. Ja- excuse me. The Jazerit ul Arab under Muslim control. The sacred places of Islam should be in the possession of Khalifa. They should not merely be free for the entry of the Muslims. And I wanted to tell you guys what Khalifa is. Khalifa... Um, is a name or title which means successor, ruler, or leader, and most commonly refers to the leader of caliphate, which uh, by is also used as a title among uh, very various Islamic leaders. They should not merely be free for the entry of the Muslims of the world by the grace or the license of non-Muslim powers, but should be possession and property of Islam in the fullest degree. See now, when he talks about Islam, he's a Hindu, but he is in power. So, and actually the Hindu religion was one of the first religions to um, tell the world that they needed to learn about all these other religions. And it's okay to incorporate other religions um I guess like their structures or, you know, like um, how they say, um, this dial or yeah, I'm this denomination, you know, of, you know, Jew Judaism or I'm this denomination of um, Christianity. 
And I believe that's what they're, uh, or what he's kind of getting at here. Um, the holy places of Islam are taken out of the Khalifa's kingdom. Some left in the possession of minor Muslim chiefs of Arabia, entirely dependent on Europe control, and some relegated to newly formed non-Muslim states. The, in a word, the Muslims' free choice of Khalifa, such as Islamic tradition defines, is made an unreality. The Hindu Dharma. And Dharma, you guys, is um, Sanskrit, is the language. And it stands for decree. Dharma is an unmutable force, as well as duty of every individual to contribute to the natural order of reality through the correct actions, which in turn relates to karma. So, you know, dharma is like the governing governing individual conduct of somebody. It's like how they govern their conduct. And that in turn relates to karma, which karma is Sanskrit for fate or effect. And... I have always had a problem in my lifetime with um, Americans always like, well, that's karma. That's karma, bitch. You know, and in the early 2000s, I heard it quite frequently and more and more. And I, I really knew that they were so wrong. And it was like, I'm never using that word because like I tell you all the time in my other podcasts, you know, I just did one on the, you know, com communist manifesto. I mean... There's so many different um, things that go into one word, and I don't want to use words because they actually cast spells and are powerful. Words are very powerful. That's why, like, when somebody tells me something when I first meet them, I know right away everything that goes on with you. When I hear your opinions, I cancel out everything you're telling me. When you tell me your opinions, I know who you are. I see who you are. And I know what's governing your thought process and ways of means of the scales of justice later on in this relationship that may affect me. So I try to look through all the facade and the foreshadowing of words used that don't mean anything. But when the opinion comes out, that's what I find most intriguing of the human voice and interpersonal person that the person I'm talking to is exposing to me. And I find that pretty wild. The Hindu Dharma. The age of misunderstanding and mutual warfare among religions is gone. In India, if India has a mission of its own to the world, it is to establish the unity and the truth of all religions. See there? The truth of all religions. That's what they want to establish in Hindu. You know, they're not against any other religion. It has come as a rare privilege to the Hindus in the fulfillment of this mission of India to stand up in defiance of Islam against the onslaught of the earth greed of the military powers of the West. Hmm, I wonder who that military strong arm of the world is who spends $600 billion a year on their uh, military. Could it be the U.S.? Duh. The Dharma of Hinduism... In this respect is re, uh, placed beyond all doubt by 
Bhagavat Gita. Those who are the Voltaires of other gods and worship them with faith, even they worship me alone through not at, oh, excuse me, I skipped a word here. Even they, O Cantier, worship me alone through not as the Shastraya requires. <clears throat> and um, the word Shastraya is, in Hinduism, is, and some forms of Buddhism, is a work of scripture. Thank you guys for listening. This is the Hin this is Freedom's Battle by Mahatma Gandhi and this is the Hindu Dharma. The Dharma of Hinduism in this respect is placed beyond all doubt by the Bhagavad Gita. Whoever being devoted wishes in perfect faith to worship a particular form of such a one maintained the same faith unshaken. Hinduism will realize its fullest beauty when in the fulfillment of this cardinal tenet, it, its followers offer themselves as sacrifice for the protection of the faith of their brothers, the Muslims. If Hindus and Muslims attain the height of courage, I gotta see what this muscle of muns is. It's a Persian word. Um, he will be generous towards. Okay, ah, uh, wow, not a great pertaining to the religious law or civilization of Islam, an adherent of Islam. Interesting. I like it, muscle of So they were pretty much Muslims were. Um, Islamic believers, I guess. If Hindus and Muslims attain the height of courage and sacrifice that is needed for this battle on behalf of Islam against the greed of the West, a victory will be won. See, now remember that book I did, The Communist Manifesto, The Greed of the West? Here he's talking about that here. A victory will be won, not alone, for Islam. So other people felt the Industrial Revolution trickling into those little small streets and towns all over the world. But for Christianity itself. Let me reread that. If Hindus and Muslims attain the height of courage and sacrifice that is needed for this battle on behalf of Islam against the greed of the West, a victory will be won not alone for Islam but for Christianity itself. Militarism has robbed the crucified God of his name and his very cross and the world has been mistaken it to be Christianity. After the battle of Islam is won, Islam and Hinduism together can emancipate Christianity itself from the lust for power and wealth which have strangled it now and the truth, true Christianity of Gospels will be established. See, and that's why that I told you in my last um, podcast about, you know, the rising up of these religious entities in the world and how, you know, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. It's like 
75% fastest growing. This battle of non-cooperation with its suffering and peaceful withdrawal of service will once for all establish its superiority over the power of brute force and unlimited slaughter. What a glorious privilege it is to play our part in this history of the world. Then Hinduism and Christianity will unite on behalf of, behalf of Islam, and in that strife of mutual love and support, each re religion will attain its own truest shape and beauty. And that part right there reminds me of a movie called The Life of Pi. And Pi was a Christian, Buddhist, Hinduist stuck on a, sh a boat and had to fight all his mind and battles of different things. That was a wonderful movie. And that's what that paragraph reminded me of. An enduring treaty. Sawara for, excuse me. Let me see what that actually means. Yeah, that's all right. Sawara for India has two great problems. One internal and other external. I believe Sawara is a town in India. Don't quote me on that. How can Hindus and Muslim Muslims so different from each other form a strong and united nation, nation governing themselves peacefully? This was the question for years and no one could believe that the two communities could suffer for each other till the miracle was actually worked. The, the Kilifat has solved the problem by the magic of suffering. Each has truly touched and captured the other's heart, and the nation now is strong and united. Not internal strength, excuse me, not internal strength and unity alone has the Kilifat brought to India. The great block in the way of India aspirations for full freedom was the problem of external defiance. How is India left to herself defend her frontiers against her Muslim neighbors? None but emasculated nations would accept such difficulties and responsibilities as an answer to the demand for freedom. It is only a a people who mentally has been perverted that can soothe itself with the denomination by one race from a distant country as preventative against the aggression of another, a permanent and natural neighbor. Instead of developing strength to protect ourselves against those near who we are permanently placed, I feel a of incurable impotence has been generated. Two strong and brave nations can live side by side, strengthening each other through enforcing constant vigilance and maintain in full vigor each its own national strength, unity, patriotism, and resources. Resources, excuse me. If a nation wishes to be respected by its neighbors, it has to be developed and enter into honorable treaties. These are the only natural conditions of national liberty, but not a surrender to distant military powers to save oneself from one's neighbor. And that there is talking about NATO and things like that. Uh, you know, coalitions that 
promise to protect each other when other entities of the world don't want to be a part of those things, in which I don't think that everybody should be a part of NATO or NAFTA or whatever, you know, because, you know, how great those things are, they also cause other countries and other places and people harm and injustices that us here in the States have no idea about, and it's unfortunate. The, yeah, the Kilifat, that's a that's an interesting one. The Kilifat uh, movement, also known as the Caliphate movement or the Indian Muslim movement, was a pan-Islamist political protest campaign. Just to let you all know, you know, what the, the Kilifat is. The Kilifat has resolved the problem of distrust of Asi- Asiatic neighbors out of our future. The Indian struggle for the f- freedom of Islam has brought about a more lasting entity and a more binding treaty between the people of India and the people of the Muslim states around it and then all the entities and treaties among the governments of Europe. No wars of aggression are possible where the common people on the two sides have become grateful friends. The faith of the Muslim is a better sanction than the seal of European diplomats and plenipotentiaries. Not only has this great friendship between India and Muslim states around it removed for all time the fear of Muslim aggression from outside, but it has erected India a solid wall of defiance against all aggression from beyond against all greed from Europe, Russia, or elsewhere. No secret diplomacy could establish a better entity or a stronger federation than what this open and non-governmental treaty between Islam and India has established. The Indian support of the Khilafat has, as if by magic, a magic wand, converted what was once the pan-Islamic terror for Europe into a solid wall of friendship and defiance for India. And I can't, this kind of reminds me of now what's going on in India back in the 20s. It reminds me of what's going on and has been going on in um, Israel for generations, you know. And in the reality, the stuff that was going on in Israel at one point between like Pakistan and Israel was a fight over land and you know the Israelites were cast into the wilderness so they went through the wilderness and they made the wilderness that was all desert dry lands no no hope for growing anything well they irrigated the land made it the most i mean they makes it was the biggest money generating area in you know, the Mediterranean at one point, and maybe still to this day, I don't know. But that's kind of why, it kind of reminded me of their conflict there. and Because, I mean, it's like, it's the only Christian nation surrounded by nothing but Islam. And I find it to be interesting. The British Connection is the next title. And Freedom's Battle by Mahatma Gandhi. And I chose Mahatma Gandhi's book today because, obviously, Mahatma Gandhi was one of the greatest fasters in the world as a world leader he fasted to be able to um create discernment and decision making and to make wonderful decisions for the people of india and south africa when he was alive the british connection 
Every nation, like every individual, is born free. Absolute freedom is the birthright of every people. The only limitation are those which a people may place over themselves. The British connection is invaluable as long as it is a defiance against any worse connection sought to be imposed by violence. But it is only a means to an end, not a mandate of providence of nature. The alliance of neighbors born of suffering for each other's sake, for ends that purify those that suffer, is necessarily a more natural and more enduring bond that one that has resulted from pure greed on the one side and weakness on the other. Where such a natural and enduring alliance has been accomplished among Asiatic people and not only between the respective governments, it may truly be felt to be more valuable than the British connection itself. After that, connection has denied freedom or equality and even injustice. The alternative is violence or total surrender that only choice open to only people to whom freedom or justice is denied. Violence at a time when the whole world has learnt from bitter experience the futility of violence is unworthy of a country whose ancient people's privilege it was to see the truth long ago. Violence may rid a nation of its foreign masters, but will only enslave it from inside. I want to reread that. Violence may rid a nation of its foreign masters, but will only enslave it from the inside. No nation, and that's why everybody now is making such a fuss about that January 6th insurrection with uh, President Donald Trump, or former President Donald Trump. Violence may rid a nation of its foreign masters, but will only enslave it from the inside. And that's why we're totally against insurrections. But... I believe that then people also were exercising their constitutional rights to rise up, but I don't know. No nation can rely, excuse me, I should, let me be clear. I I actually don't know the laws behind insurrection. I do not know much about it. No nation can really be free, which is at the mercy of its army and its military heroes. If a people rely on freedom on its soldiers, the soldier will rule the country, not the people. Till the recent awakening of the workers of Europe, this was the only freedom which powers of Europe really enjoyed. True freedom can exist only when those who produce, not those who destroy or know only to live on others' labor, are the masters. And remember, that was in my last book I did, The Communist Manifesto, they talked about that. Even where, uh, excuse me, even where violence, the true road to freedom, is violence possible to a nation which has been emasculated and deprived of all weapons? And the whole world is hopelessly in advance of all our possibilities in the manufacture and the wielding of weapons of destruction. Submission and withdrawal of cooperation is the real and only alternative before India. Submission to injustice puts the tempting garb of peace and gradual process, but there is no surer way to death than submission to wrong. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. 
And today I'm doing Freedom's Battle by Mahatma Gandhi, where he talked about Dharma, which is Sanskrit for uh, decree, or a governing of an individual's conduct, which relates to karma, which is Sanskrit for meaning and fate. I wanted to tell you about that again. And the, the next title is Fifth Apeya. Our ancient classified the arts of conquest into four well-known upayas. Sama, Dana, Uheda, and Danda. A fifth upaya was recognized sometimes by our ancients, which they called Upshika. It is this. Panchampeya, this is placed by Mahatma Gandhi before the people of India in the form of non-cooperation as an alternative besides violence to surrender. So this is his way of peace. Where in many, <coughs> excuse me, where in any case negotiations have failed and the enemy is neither corruptible nor incapable of being divided. And see, yeah, we, and that's the same. The Roman saying is uh, "divide and conquer," and he talks about it here. If they're incapable of being divided, and a resort, resort, excuse me, and a resort to violence has failed or would certainly be futile, the method of upshaka remains to be applied to the case. Indeed, when the very existence of the power we seek to defeat really depends on our continuous cooperation with it and where our abshika its very life our abshika or non-cooperation is the most natural and most effective expedient that we can employ to bend it to our will no englishman believes that his nation can rule or keep india for a day unless the people of india actively cooperate to maintain that rule whether the cooperation be given willingly or through ignorance, cupidity, cupidity, habit, or fear, the withdrawal of that cooperation means impossibility of foreign rule in India. Some of us may not realize this, but those who govern us have long ago known and are now kneeling unlive to this truth. Excuse me. Known and are now kneeling alive in this truth. The active assistance of the people in this country and the supply of the money, men, and knowledge of the languages, customs, and laws of the land is the mainspring of the continuous life of the foreign administration. Indeed, the circumstances of British rule in this country are such that, but for a Double supply of cooperation on the part of the governed, it must have broken down long ago. Any system of race domination is unnatural and can be kept up only by active coercion through a foreign recruited public. Service invested with large powers, however much it may be helped by perversions of mentality shaping the education of youth of the country, the foreign recruited service must necessarily be very highly paid. 
This creates a wrong standard for the Indian recruited officials also. Military expenditures has to cover not only the needs of defiance against foreign aggression, but also the possibilities of internal unrest and rebellion. And that's going on right here in the United States as well. And that's another reason why I kind of picked this book too. And I've been picking books that I feel it's interesting. These certain words and people that have written these books, they correlate with the times now. And it's like you fast forward 100 years and here we are. And we're actually going through the same thing that these people were going through there. But we're actually under a democracy and it seems like our democracy is falling apart, but I don't believe that it is. I believe that's a fakeade brought on by um, fake news, the news itself, because every news um, entity out there is owned by like one or two groups, and all the news is there to do is to divide, conquer and divide. Like, you know, CNN has this view, Fox News has this view. Well, in reality, they were both owned by the same entity. And people are, oh, no, they're not. Oh, yeah, they are. I mean, you know, like I tell you in my other podcast, podcast, yeah, he, oh, he's a conspiracy theorist. No, I'm not. Do the research. Follow the money. Don't be stupid. You know, when I tell you about, like, the Rothschilds and stuff like that, people are like, oh, they're, they're not around anymore. They don't have to be around, man. They don't, they've made so much money since the beginning of time, they don't have to be around anymore. But just know that their money is going into, the, your money is going into their bank account somehow. You know, and that's kind of, this book kind of, you know, reminds me of some of the things that are just going on around me right now. And also you can really um, understand that people that read this book when it came out in the U.S. that went on to become presidents, you know, 20 years after they read this book, you know, this book affected them. That's why he talked about, you know, you can't have it. That last paragraph I read was pretty much talking about slavery. You know, you can't be, you can't have slavery. It don't work. It'll only work by coercion from an outside entity, which we had, we've had it here. It don't work. And it's stupid that it, we were tricked into a trade that now as Americans or, you know, white people are being blamed for some stuff. That, I wasn't no slave owner. My daddy wasn't either. Uh, please leave me alone, and I am fast-forwarding now to my life. I don't want any part of that stuff because to to keep reliving something is to keep being divided, and to, pe to keep being divided is not opening your mind to be loved and to be accepted and to forgive. And on to Freedom's Battle, Some Objections, the next title. The powerful character of the measure, however leads some to object to non-cooperations because of that very reason. Striking as it does at the very root of government in India, they fear that non-cooperation must lead to anarchy and that the remedy is worse than the disease. This is an objection arising out of insufficient allowance for human nature. It is assumed that the British people will allow their connection with India to cease rather than remedy the wrongs for which we seek justice. If this assumption be correct, no doubt it must lead to separation and possibly also anarchy for a time. If the operatives in a f factory have grievances, negotiations have failed, a strike would on a similar argument be never 
admissible. Unyielding obstinacy being presumed, it must end in the closing down of the factory and breakup of the men. But if in 99 out of 100 cases it is not the case that strikes end in this matter, it is more unlikely that instead of writing the manifest wrongs that India complains about, the British people will value their Indian domain so low as to prefer to allow us to non-cooperate up to the point of separation. It would be a totally false reading of British character and British history, but but if such wicked obstinacy be ultimately shown by a government, far be it from us to prefer peace at the price of abject surrender to wrong. There is no anarchy greater than the moral anarchy of surrender to unrepentant wrong. Yeah, for real. We all know that. We may, however, be certain that if we show the strength and unity necessary for non-cooperation long before we progress with it far, we shall have developed true order and true self-government wherein there is no place for anarchy. And I do believe right here that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he had read this book and he understood that he had to develop people in a way of peaceful protest that love would rule over any kind of anarchy that arose from, you know, the segregations that were going on. And he understood this. I totally know for sure that some of this stuff, I mean, it just makes sense to me. And, um, you know, this part about Great Great Britain owned a lot of stuff. You know, England owned a lot of stuff. They they conquered a lot of places and they made a lot of trade ways with, you know, huge ships and times of no automobiles, you know. And um, England actually, I read a book called uh, Australia. It's a really thick book. I picked it up at a garage sale about 20 years ago. But it blew my mind. And if you ever get a chance, read that book. It's called Australia. And um, England ha- had an idea at one point that um, if they they could um, rid England of crime or criminals and crime if they got rid of all the criminals. So they cleaned out all their jails and prisons and institutions and shipped them on huge boats to Australia where they had prisons built. Well, when England started to run out of money and had money problems, they couldn't feed anybody there. So eventually all the prison, um, you know, correctional officers had to free everybody. So in today's society, Australia was made and formed from inmates, men and women, rapists, murderers, thieves, you know, because they used to lock you up back then for stealing bread. They'd give you a life. For stealing bread back then, which is crazy. Um, another fear sometimes expressed that if non-cooperations were to succeed, the British would have to go, leaving us unable to defend ourselves against foreign aggression if we have this, the self-respect, the patriotism, the tenacious purpose, and the power of organization that are necessary to drive the British out from their entrenched position, no lesser foreign power will 
dare, after that, undertake the futile task of conquering or enslaving us. It is sometimes said that non-cooperation is negative and destructive of the advantages which a stable government has conferred on us. That non-cooperation is negative is merely a half-truth. Non-cooperation with the government means greater cooperation among ourselves, greater mutual dependence among the many different castes and classes of our country. And I find that to be true, too, and that's why there's such a divide in America today, too. Because, like, a lot of people that vote a certain type of way are swayed to vote that way because they're getting some kind of help from that political regime that's in office, and they've put two and two together throughout their lives and realize that these are the people that are passing the laws that are causing them to have this income or to have this medical support you know, because in America, we our people found that, oh, we can make money on the medical system. We can charge and make a you know an empire out of this, and that's what they have done. And there came a time when certain entities of the world came together in the medical world, like Canada, Mexico, United States. And the United States opted out to give their people medical. Well, Canada and Mexico and other countries, they provide all the medical they need. And medical is free in other countries, which they say that it's... It's uh, worse than the United States. Well, that's hard to believe, and I think that's uh, propaganda. Non-cooperation is not mere negation. It will lead to recovery or the loss of cooperation among ourselves. Long dependence on an outside government, which by its interference suppressed or prevented the consequences of our differences, has made us forget the duty of Matural trust and the art of friendly adjustment. Having allowed government to do everything for us, we have gradually become incapable of doing anything ourselves. And that's why I get so upset here in Illinois because you got aldermen lobbying for politicians in Chicago. So they're on the streets meeting single um, parent moms that have five kids. And, you know, they're like, well, you know, remember when you go to the polls, they they tell them that. Remember when you go to the polls, vote Democratic, you know, because we're the ones that are giving you all this money and all these all this help and all this medical and we're giving you a place to live. So remember, vote Democratic. And it's unfortunate that we these people have become so dependent upon the government and that in the U.S. now the regime that's in office is that's exactly what they want. They want you to be. Fully, fully dependent upon the government to keep them empowered, to keep their pockets fully lined with money from our printing presses that they're firing up, causing the worst inflation. And it's all about, you know, printing so much American money that it it's all over the globe and it's worth nothing in the end. And that's what this is all about, taking the dollar and making it worth as little as possible so that the people in like, you can feel it in the U.S. right now. We're struggling as a is a country and not so much as um um within ourselves but i mean with the government because there's such a disconnect anymore and i mean trump had had enough of it and he had watched it go on his whole life and he tried to wave a truth flashlight well now they want to put him in prison and they probably will you know and i mean Hopefully he, hopefully not, because not once have they ever come after a president in our history like they have uh, Donald Trump, and it's unfortunate. You know, they should have done this to Bill Clinton, because, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, 
he goes way back. He's in the Bush regime. And the Bush regime is still in office. And this clown that's in there right now, he's the end of the Bush regime. I've seen pictures of Bill Clinton meeting with um, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush in 1983 at a, you know, it's on the internet. At a, at a barbecue with uh um what's his face? Uh George Wallace. George Wallace ran for president in our country so many times. He ran against uh um LBJ. And that was Herbert Humphreys, LBJ, and uh, George Wallace. He ran against Nixon. And the only thing George Wallace could ever do was get to be governor of Georgia because he was a segregationist. And once, in his last time he ran and he made office was 1982, but he actually quit being a segregationist because he realized how bad it hurt the country. And once he... In which, I mean, people like that, it's still, it's bred into them. I mean, my my grandma is 90, and she still says racist comments. And it's like, hey, you can't do that, man. But that's the way they were raised, and they don't know any better. And we rely too much on our government for everything. And we have not come together as people and created forces and I mean, even impoverished people could create forces, just like Mahatma Gandhi did with farmers, you know, with carpenters. He, you know, pretty much formed a union of people that rose up and became the new entity in India between Hindus and Islam, and it, it worked. He, he actually got everybody to get along and be peaceful. Having allowed government to do everything for us, we have gradually become incapable of doing anything ourselves. Even if we had no grievance against this government, non-cooperation with it for a time would be desirable so far as it would be performance led us to trusting and working with one another and thereby strengthen the bonds of national unity. And one thing I do want to say about my government is I am so thankful for all the checks and balances in my government and my four founding fathers that were beyond intelligent. You know, Ben Franklin was the first millionaire in America and he invented so many different things. He was such, he was so beyond his time when he was around. And I'm grateful for the way that my country works that, you know, and even though people that are getting into my presidency are trying to wiggle their way into becoming, you know, uh, lifetime presidents and all this other jargon, that's never going to happen here. We have all these, you know, we have the judicial system, you know, and all of our other systems in place for a reason, you know, because the executive branch of our government is a very important part, but it is not the only entity here. The... The judicial system works in a way that there are people in higher up, obviously judges, you know, their minds are so great and they have seen so many different shortcomings. They have seen so many strong comings that they have to have an intellect beyond the norm of people to be able to deem something unconstitutionable. And, you know... Our government now is trying to gain so much more power because it's a. They've learned that they can capitalize money wise. And, and, you know, and I always talk about the Bush regime because that's the last entity that's in there. And it started with, you know, the oldest Bush, you know, 
he was in office way back when JFK was there. And, you know, he worked up. Bill Clinton came on with him. I've seen pictures of him in the 80s. Then I've seen, you know, I've seen all these entities. I've seen Barack Obama's, you know, George, Herbert Walker Bush's, uh, you know, grandson. I shouldn't say grandson. They're just related somehow. I just know it through Barack Obama's mom. And once all them people, Joe Biden's the last one, I believe. And it may take four to five years or another sitting president. But for the most part, I believe that our checks and balances in this country are going to lead us back to good. And that we go through this because it's a free country and there's the electoral college and there's the popular vote. And our system goes like this because it's only fair, you know? I mean, everybody said, oh, the election was thrown. They weren't saying that when Hillary lost. Some of them were. But the checks and balances here are just amazing. And thank you guys for listening. I chose to do this book with Mahat- written by Mahatma Gandhi because I find Mahatma Gandhi to be a real intellectual mind of the world and you can real reading his stuff you learn so much different um aspects of world views and you can tell where some of the views of america comes from when you read um other people's writings of past times you know so many different things from the past like i wanted to touch base on dharma though today because so many people <clears throat> just throw that word out in the u.s karma And I always look at people with the strangest look like, do you have any idea what you are talking about? I don't think so. Oh, yeah, I do. Well, I get it. I mean, you know, but there's something else that goes along with karma, and that's dharma. So, and that's why I kind of wanted to reiterate that. And hopefully you learned some things about this book that may entice you to run out and read some of Mahatma Gandhi's stuff. And like I said, you can find this book for like seven bucks out there on most of the major platforms. Barnes and Noble, you know, um, Audible. I'm not sure if it's on Audible. I didn't see it on there, but you can find it in paperback, hardback, eBay, Amazon, all the major platforms. Thank you guys for listening to Only You Podcast. I'm going to be coming back to you each week as much as I can to build you up, to give you some information, to tell you some of my own opinions about things in life and where I'm headed and how I'm thinking. And if you have different thoughts and you want me to do a book on something that's off topic or whatever, you know, send me an email. You know where it's at. Hit the email button and I'll email you back and let you know, hey, I'm going to do it. Thank you so much and I'll talk to you soon.